I'm going to talk today about a process, uh, a spiritual process that has gone on since creation. That's uh, why the title, A Process as Old as Dirt. And I want to start with this uh, verse from Isaiah chapter 64, verse 8. It says, Yet, O Lord, you are our Father. We are the clay, you are the potter. We are all the work of your hand. I want to introduce you to uh, two words today that you may have never heard of before with a little connecting word between. The two words are tohu and bohu. And the little connection, they're Hebrew words, the little connection between them is like the word and. And so when you say the whole thing together, it sounds like this, tohu wabohu. Now, you probably haven't heard that for a while, and it's, it's not because it's a, a new word. It's new to you, but literally those two words talk about something that's actually older than dirt, literally older than dirt, because I'm going to show you where those words first appear in the Bible. Genesis chapter 1, we're going to read verses 1 and 2. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Now the earth was formless and empty. That's, that's the word right there, formless and empty, tohu wabohu. Tohu means formless, bohu means empty. Now the earth was formless and empty. Darkness was over the surface of the deep, and the Spirit of God was hovering over the waters. <clears throat> so those two words, tohu and bohu, describe the world before the world was, as we know it. And I think in Hebrew, they're intentionally chosen. They have this way they, they connect with each other sound-wise, and they have a similar meaning. So that's kind of a, a, a memory device, tohu and bohu. Uh, it would be an equivalent in English would be uh, gloom and doom. Those words don't mean exactly the same thing, <clears throat> but they do sound alike. And when you connect them, they, they have a little punch to them. So the word tohu means formless. Um, other words, desolate, chaos. Um, bohu, <clears throat> a little more simple, it means empty. And, well, there's a synonym for empty. Just empty, nothing. When you put those two words together, they actually describe a circumstance that's uninhabitable. Um, that's why the world was not ready to be lived in when that's what was there, tohu and bohu. But you see in the text that the Spirit of God is hovering over that formlessness and emptiness. And... I can tell you when the Spirit of God starts hovering over something, it's about to change. And so that is true for formlessness and emptiness. <clears throat> it's about to change. And not change in a subtle way. It's going to be overwhelmed. So God, <clears throat> excuse me, in days one through three of creation... God moves in, and he begins to speak, and he overwhelms formlessness. And when he does that, you have the birth of order and the birth of beauty. 
because God is overwhelming formlessness. And he does that in a very simple way. He just speaks into it. And suddenly the world starts to take form and order. He does this primarily by um, creating things and then separating them and then describing how they're going to work together. So, for example, on day one, he separates light from darkness. Separating light from darkness and then determining how they're going to work together. And then on day two, it says God made the expanse and separated the water under the expanse from the water above it. So he's basically separating atmosphere from all that we know as earth. He's separating those two things. And then he describes how they're going to work together. He's the sovereign creator. He he gets to do that. He gets to describe how those things are going to work together. And then on day three... In Genesis, it says, let the water under the sky be gathered to one place and let dry ground appear. And it was so. And God called the dry ground land and he gathered waters and he called them seas. Then God said, let the land produce vegetation. So on day three, down on earth, he separates the water from the dry land. And then he determines how they're going to relate to one another. You see what I mean when I say he overwhelms formlessness. He begins to form the universe. It's his privilege to do that. And as you see there in those first three days, some pretty important things. Um, He created time with the light and darkness thing. Created uh, weather with the uh, distinguishing the expanse above from what was below. And created, uh, well, the whole food cycle when he raised up dry land and then brought forth vegetation. Uh, That's three pretty good days' work there to create time, weather, and food. And my guess is those three things have already been on your minds this morning. You've probably already today, since you've been up, said, what time is it? wonder what the weather is going to be today. What are we going to eat? the work of the creator the first three days when he overwhelmed formlessness and began to give order and beauty. The universe and its multiple systems are ordered in such a way that they please God, but they are finely orchestrated. Again, it's, it's not overstating the case to say he overwhelmed formlessness. There are parts of the universe that are vastly separated from each other that have the same mathematical formulas that determine them. I don't know how many of you have ever studied uh, the Fibonacci ratio, that mathematical ratio. Um, It's built into things like the rotation of the planets, even galaxies, to breaking waves, to hurricanes, to flowers, to leaf patterns to DNA strands within the human body, to the human ear. It's a ratio that's even called by those who don't believe in God, the divine proportion. I see him smiling when, he, uh, when he's doing all of that and overwhelming formlessness by creating such order. And in the process, 
creating beauty. Because you see, in the mind of God, beauty and order are very much connected with one another. I want to tell you, that's helped me a lot in singing worship songs about beauty. And, oh, Lord, you're beautiful. Um, When we're singing those, my mind doesn't go to the Warner Salmon portrait of Jesus Christ. Oh, Lord, you're beautiful. My mind doesn't go to physical appearance. My, My mind goes to what he has done, what he has created, and how finely ordered and amazing and intricate it is. An expression of beauty. So he overwhelms Tohu by bringing order and beauty. But there are three days left uh, in his creative work. So what do you suppose he's going to do those three days? He's going to overwhelm Bohu. Bohu is emptiness. And God overwhelms emptiness. And you have the birth of fullness. And he begins to fill this universe that he has ordered on days one through three. And actually... Because he's a God of order, even in the telling of the story, there's a symmetry. Uh, Days 4, 5, and 6 correspond to days 1, 2, and 3. So on day 4, he's filling the universe with lights to function as his agents to maintain this separation of light and darkness that he formed on day 1. And on day five, he's filling the expanse above with birds and the watery expanse below with every sea creature, filling the zones that he formed on day two. And on day six, he's filling the dry land that he formed and separated on day three with every kind of living creature after its kind. So he overwhelms Bohu by bringing fullness. So even in the text of Genesis, as the creation story is described, from that point on, you don't have words like emptiness. You don't have bohu anymore. You have words like teeming and swarming and filled and multiplied, because God has spoken into this emptiness and brought fullness. But I'm sure you remember that on day six, there is this crowning moment to all of creation when God creates the human being. So back to Genesis 1, beginning with verse 26. Then God said, Let us make mankind in our image, in our likeness, and let them rule over the fish of the sea and the birds of the air, over the livestock, over all the earth, and over all the creatures that move along the ground. So God created mankind in his own image. In the image of God, he created them. Male and female, he created them. God blessed them and said to them, Be fruitful and increase in number. Fill the earth and subdue it. Rule over the fish of the sea and the birds of the air and over every living creature that moves on the ground. So in the creation of human beings, God is doing the same thing. He is overwhelming tohu and bohu. He is overwhelming formlessness and emptiness. The formless part, he actually forms human beings. And then he orders their relationship with the rest of creation. They're separate from the rest of creation. Remember, that's his pattern. He separates things and then determines how they're going to relate to one another. So they're separate from the rest of creation, but he orders their very special place in creation. He then separates them into male and female. 
And then he orders their relationship with one another. He calls them together, a relationship that ultimately leads to a covenant relationship, a holy relationship, and a filling of the earth. So this description of the creation of human beings includes both forming, that is separating and defining, and filling. And when you look at the the summary statement in chapter 2 of Genesis that paints the picture, it speaks volumes. In Genesis chapter 2, verse 7, the Lord God formed the man from the dust of the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and the man became a living being. It's a picture here of the potter forming with his own hands and then filling as he breathes his life into this vessel he has created, this, this vessel that bears his image. Now, we began looking with that verse from Isaiah 64, 8. O Lord, you are our father. We are the clay. You are the potter. We are all the work of your hand. That was spoken by the prophet Isaiah. But generations after Isaiah, Jeremiah, the prophet, was also called by God to speak on this issue of of God being the potter. In fact, he was called to go down to a potter's house and watch and receive a message. And what he saw was a very common image. What he saw was a potter working in the clay. And the method of shaping that clay, at first glance, is very, very simple. You have a wheel that's going around and round, and the potter is exerting strategic force or pressure to form a vessel that the potter has in mind. So you have this simple picture. You have a potter there who obviously has something in mind, and what's in mind is being translated through hands on this vessel, and all of these circular rotations and something is being formed. I actually think that is a wonderful picture of spiritual development. You have to submit to the Lord's control. You have to stay in the center of the wheel. If the clay goes off center from the wheel, then you really don't get a vessel. You get a mess. You have to stay right in the center of the wheel. You have to submit to the Lord's control. You have to submit to his hands. And you have to submit to this day after day, moment by moment, constant revolutions, which actually feels a lot like normal life. Normal life feels that way, doesn't it? Here we go again. Another day. When you think of the process of spiritual formation, uh, take, for example, Jeremy and Allison and, and Luke and Noah and Joshua, If every day they woke up and paraded the boys in after having spent the day with them trying to uh, participate with God in their shaping and forming, if they called the boys in, lined them up every day, looked at them, they would probably say, you don't look much different. Because one rotation of the potter's wheel, you usually don't look that much different. And you don't see most potters doing that. One spin, stop. I don't see it. Another, I don't see it. It's the hundreds and sometimes thousands and thousands of rotations that you begin to see something taking shape. Incidentally, that's what makes uh, parenting so difficult. 
you wait a long time to see what's being formed there. And it's day after day after day. It's also what makes teaching Sunday school classes tough, too, because the same principle. It doesn't happen in a day. It happens many days, day after day, staying in the center of the wheel, allowing God to place his hands on you and form and shape you. Now, I do want to say, so you don't get going the wrong direction on this, the biblical worldview is not that life is some circle that just keeps going round and round. The biblical worldview is that uh, life uh, has a beginning and it has an end and there is a destination in mind. And yet it's clear that the way human life is lived is you're doing these daily circles, but you're going someplace. So back to the potter's wheel uh, that Jeremiah speaks of. While the, the, the wheel is a good picture of the daily events of life, the fact is the potter who is shaping this vessel has something in mind, intends to take the vessel from something that looks like this to something that looks different than this. So there is this linear process. There is movement. There is uh, a plan. There is a future in mind. And the circles are used. But without the presence of the shaping hand of God, you can imagine what life becomes like. Then you're just going around in circles. Apart from the shaping hand of God, you are a lump of clay just going around in circles. And if you're not being formed into something, you cannot be filled. And if you're not being formed and filled, then you have gone back to tohu wabohu, formless and empty. We know that's a possibility for this life, to be formless and empty. And of course, all of that's a real possibility because after Genesis 1 and 2 comes Genesis 3. Those created in the image of God with lives of beauty and fullness get reintroduced to Tohu and Bohu. Satan, in the form of a serpent, comes and manipulates and deceives and and convinces them to disregard the Creator. The Creator brought order and form by separating things and then defining their relationship. So, in fact, he had actually defined a garden that was for them. But he had also defined that there was one tree that was not for them to eat. Like all the other trees, they could look at it and enjoy it, but all the other trees they could look at, enjoy, and eat. This one tree they could look at, enjoy, couldn't eat. He defined that's what the Creator does. He set a boundary. They were encouraged to disregard that boundary. He leads them to make a judgment on what the Creator has done. There is a twisting of what he has ordered and filled. And so Satan distorts the form that God has introduced by saying, no boundaries. Wait a minute, he's created a boundary for you there. No boundaries. And he denies the fullness that God has given them by saying to them, what? There's one thing that's being withheld from you? That's scarcity. You don't want a scarce life, do you? 
I still marvel at that. You know, if you don't think Satan's deceptive and good at that, how do you look at two people who have the entire world that belongs to them to do anything they want, to rule over the whole thing? All of it belongs to them, but there's this one tree they just can't eat from, they can look at. How do you introduce the idea that this is a scarce life I'm living here and that God's withholding something from me? But he did it. His solution, Satan's solution, was you, you need to take matters into your own hand. You need to look out for yourself. Form your own life. You define the boundaries. And you fill your life. If you see something that looks like it's being withheld, you go get it. You fill your life. And they did. And the change for them was swift. And actually, the change for the rest of creation was pretty swift. Now, they're not cast into utter darkness, so they, they return to a sense of formlessness and emptiness, but they don't return to the pre-creation world where there's just uh, utter darkness. But they are living in the shadows from that point on. They are hiding. There's a, a craftiness about them now, a scheming that speaks of the chaos and the lack of order of the original picture of of formlessness oh they're still breathing physically by the mercy of god but that holy breath of life that had filled these formed creatures that holy breath of god has now been knocked out of them by their rebellion it puts them in that spot that experience of having the breath knocked out of them and i'm sure pretty much Everyone in this room at some point in your life have had that experience where you've had the breath knocked out of you. Uh, You're probably glad you haven't had it recently. It's a frightening experience. You can't get your breath. First time it happens, you think you're dying. Something horrible has happened because the breath has gone out of you. Well, our first parents, when they rebelled against his form and his fullness, experienced that. They're gasping. They start grasping. And they begin to feel the void, the void of that original emptiness. Well, the rest of uh, the book of Genesis, I mean, that's chapter 3, and now there's 47 more chapters, the, the rest of that book, and then 38 more books in the Old Testament describe the story from then on, the hiding, the scheming, the panic, the gasping, the grasping, the fear. 38 more books of the revenge of Tohu Wabohu, and it has its impact on people. Well, we're glad that's not the end of the story because there's more to the Bible. God had a plan. So when the New Testament opens... There's an interesting uh, word in the very first chapter, the very first verse of the first chapter of the Gospel of John. That Gospel begins this way, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was with God in the beginning. Through him all things were made. Without him nothing was made that has been made. In him was life, and that life was the light of men. Now, 
you have no idea what good news that first verse and one particular word in that first verse of John is. The chaos that the world had now inherited because of their rebellion. In that first verse, it says, in the beginning was the word. The Greek term that's being translated word there is logos. Maybe you've heard that term before. In the beginning was the logos. Well, for the Greeks, logos wasn't just a word. It was a word that described an entire philosophical concept. And in their minds, in their world, Logos was that which undid chaos. It was the ordering principle and force in the world. It was that thing in the world that begins to show how things connect with each other and how this world makes sense. That, all of that was wrapped up in the word Logos, the undoing of chaos, Logos. So when the Gospels open you hear that introduction of Jesus. He was there in the beginning. He was the Logos, the ordering one, the one who brought form and order and connected things. So in the 14th verse of that first chapter, it gives us this phenomenal news. The word, the Logos, became flesh and made his dwelling among us. We have seen his glory, the glory of the one and only who came from the Father full of grace and truth. John's gospel pictures that the one who defeats chaos and formlessness is here. Our Savior has come to rescue us from the formlessness and emptiness and to give us a life that is formed by our God and full, starting on the inside. So in John 1, we are introduced to the second person of the Trinity, Jesus, or I should say reintroduced to him. He was there at creation. So John 1, we're reintroduced to the second person of the Trinity. He's the Logos coming to conquer and shatter the chaos and transform us. The next book of the New Testament, Acts chapter 1 and 2, we are reintroduced to the third person of the Trinity, the Holy Spirit, the Spirit who comes to fill these newly formed vessels who have been formed and shaped by Jesus, the one who is the Logos. So you see right there in John chapter 1, in Acts chapters 1 and 2, God's answer to tohu and bohu, formlessness and emptiness. Now, the key part that we play in all of this, it sounds simple, but here it is. It's submission. That's the role we play in this story. If we resist the forming and filling work of the potter and out to form our own life and to fill our own life, usually without even knowing it, we have chosen formlessness and emptiness. We've chosen to return to that uninhabitable situation, formless and empty. Now, nobody chooses that directly. I mean, if somebody said to you, would you like to have a formless and empty life? Or would you like to have a well-formed and full life? Nobody chooses formlessness and emptiness directly. In the same way, you don't choose death. So in Deuteronomy, when, uh, 
when Moses is saying, I put before you life and death, and I encourage you to choose life. Well, if you knew this was life and this was death, and you were making a choice at that moment, you'd go with the life. But you choose death without being aware of your choosing that, and you choose formlessness and emptiness without being aware that that's what you're choosing. It happens when the clay moves from the center of the wheel, resists the potter's hand, says, I have a better way. I got this. I can do this. It appears to be a choice for freedom. It appears to be a choice for freedom, but it leads to futility. It leads to a broken vessel that won't hold water. Now, I want to end with a picture of the gospel here. The gospel is God's answer to formlessness and emptiness. And that gospel is a gospel that we see in the New Testament, but I want you to see that gospel, hints of that gospel are right there in creation because our creator and and redeemer, these are one. So when the creator is doing his work, there are hints of redemption in it. For example, when the creator begins his work by defeating chaos, by coming to this um, formlessness, this chaos, by coming and saying, this is over, and he does it by just speaking. He does it by saying, let there be light. This is over. It is finished, this formlessness. That's a hint of the gospel that's coming way down the road. And when God then reaches down into the ground, literally, and pulls out of that ground a human being and then breathes his life into that human being, there's a picture of resurrection and the filling of the Holy Spirit. And that's in the first few verses of the book of Genesis. Our creator and redeemer, he is one. It is the gospel that we proclaim, that God wants to shape our lives and fill our lives. Whatever you can do to cooperate with that will lead to a formed and full life. And when you resist it, you are threatening formlessness and emptiness. Let's pray together. Lord, I pray for my brothers and sisters gathered here today. You are involved in shaping their lives. You know each one of them individually. You actually have very clearly in mind what you would like to do with their lives, how you would like to shape their life, how you would like to fill their life, and even overflow their life, and the people that you would like to be influenced and affected positively by the overflow of their life. You see all of those things about all of us, Lord. You are the sovereign Lord, and so we submit ourselves to you. Where we have been resisting you, moving from the center of the wheel, resisting your touch in our lives, we ask that you would forgive us. We want to surrender once again to the one who is the potter. We ask that you would make us what you choose.
In Jesus' name, amen.